Making Wise Choices. This course is going to attempt to answer the question that is probably on everyone's mind, and that is, how can I know God's plan for my life? Okay, Maybe you've asked that question of yourself or some variation. Perhaps it's been, how can I tell when God is leading me? How can I tell when God is guiding me um, to do this or that? Maybe you've wondered how God communicates to you. I mean, how does God speak to me? What, what if I miss God's will? Maybe you've even been nervous that if you make a wrong choice, you might miss God's best for your life, God's plan A. And as a result, you're, you've resorted to and have been uh, resigned to following down this plan B in life where you, you get the second best. The, you, you made this choice back here and now you can't know for sure that you're on God's right path. Path. Well, this class is designed to answer just those types of questions and to calm those fears. So today we're going to look at the doctrine of, as you see in your course outline there, the providence of God. And this is a bedrock assumption that we have to understand, or bedrock doctrine that we have to understand in order to understand the rest of the, the class, in order to be able to answer these questions that we've laid out here. Next week, we'll consider exactly what God's will is for your, for your life. Okay, That's, You heard rightly. I said you're going to be able to find out what God's will is for your life. In fact, I'll tell you what it is right now. It is that you are united with Christ in perfect holiness, entirely free from the corruption of sin for all eternity in God's unmediated and uninterrupted presence. That's God's will for you. To be connected to Christ in holiness. in holiness. And next week, we'll, we'll talk about what exactly that means and why it's important. And, uh, and once we set up these two things, that is, the providence of God, that God is in control of everything, and the fact that God is leading you to something, He's, he's leading your life to something, then we'll be able to move on and ask those other questions and answer those. That is, what color car should I purchase? Which job should I should I pursue? And those types of things. Okay, so then in week three, we'll, we'll see how it is that God speaks to us, and that is specifically that God speaks to us by His Son, through His Spirit, in the Word. And we'll talk exactly what that means, and that basically means that the Bible is sufficient for all of life's choices. Okay? Now, these are... There's a lot of things that we need to grasp here, so that's why I'm, I'm just reviewing here or previewing here, and we'll go the, into these in details, in detail as we move on throughout the weeks. Once we once we talk about those three things, then we'll be able to finally consider the art of hearing God's voice and helping us to determine what it is that God wants us to do. How can we be at the center of God's will? It's what we often think. Okay, how can I make sure that I'm doing exactly what God wants? And those will be studies in moral obedience and godly wisdom. That's weeks four and five. Week six, we'll look at the, a true life example of how these principles work. Okay, um, we'll, we'll go back through lessons one through five and try to play this out in a practical, real life situation, specifically uh, a job or career path that one should choose since everybody uh, has faced that or will face that in life. Then in week seven, uh, we'll bring together everything that we've talked about in the first six weeks and demonstrate from Psalm chapter 1 how the happy life is found in the center of God, God's will. That, that the happiest 
we can be is in the center of God's will. So, for today, we're going to make a run at the first few chapters of Ecclesiastes. So let's turn there. Ecclesiastes. Find uh, the middle of your Bible, that psalm. Then you'll move towards the back and you'll find Ecclesiastes, a couple chapters, a couple books after Psalm. Okay, Ecclesiastes. Now what we need to determine today uh, from these chapters is, is does it even matter what kind of decisions we make? Does it really matter? Because one thing's for sure, we're all going to die. So what difference does it really make what we do along the way? Maybe we're blowing this whole what should I do idea business way out of, the, out of proportion. James Petty in his book, Step by Step, Divine Guidance for Ordinary Christian, writes this. The physical facts of the situation are not encouraging. Man seems very ins- insignificant. The universe appears at present to be at least 12 billion light years across. Astronomers have gotten glimpses of what they think are galaxies 90% of the way across that expanse. And yet, only 10% of that matter is visible across that distance. The universe is so vast that there is an entire galaxy okay, containing many millions of stars for every grain of sand on the earth. There's one galaxy for every grain of sand. That's what scientists believe. Then there are the unseen realms of heaven created outside of time and space where untold myriads of angels and other created beings dwell. Against that backdrop, one person's decision about a mother's living situation, a job, a school, or a mate may seem incredibly insignificant outside the tiny temporary sphere of our self-centered existence. Why would God be concerned with such fleeting details anyway? Why would it matter at all since everyone and everything ends up dead? Are we just living in denial, ignoring all the evidence of the insignificance of our decisions? Biologist Stephen Jay Gold is typical of modern thinkers who label our desires for significance as a beautiful illusion. I mean, these are legitimate observations, aren't they? Uh, Is our life really that important? when we think of ourselves in connection with the entire universe. When we are so small, we're all going to end up dying, so it doesn't matter what we're going to do along the way. Well, today we're going to see that the book of Ecclesiastes um, really teaches us that all of life comes down to the very details, that God is concerned about all of them, including how the potatoes grow. It doesn't matter what it is. God is concerned about it and that life has great meaning, value, and consequence. Everything that exists and everything that occurs in the created order has great meaning and value because it has been set up by a creator who has great meaning and value. And so the thesis of this book, the theme of the book is this. Meaningful, meaningful, all is meaningful. Okay, you have that at the top of your page. That's the thesis of the book. That's the theme of what the author is trying to get at. That God is sovereign in all that happens in creation, and so He is concerned about every area of life, down to the smallest details. Now, there's many there's many misconceptions today about that idea that God is sovereign. 
and it leads to, to many wrong questions which lead to misunderstandings about God's will. So this, this class is a study on the bedrock doctrine of what the entire rest of the course must rest upon, and that is the providence of God. All right. So in order to understand this book, the first thing we need to get in our mind is the author's flow of thought. It's not a connection. It's not just a bunch of jumbled um, statements that are put together. It's it's all one unit, and we see the author here in verse one and verse twelve. Let's look at that. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Okay, so keep that in mind. The son of David, king in Jerusalem. Look at verse twelve. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now, there's only one person who was the son of David and reigned over all of Israel. Who was that? Solomon. Okay, David had several sons and there were several kings of Israel, but there's only one. There's only one who was both, both the son of David and the king of Israel. So the author in this book is the same man that we read about all of his power and fame and riches. So this is important for us to understand because it's not some poor guy saying, oh, all those rich people, they, they don't understand how good it is for, for me to live in, in the way that I do. No, this is a guy who has experienced it all, literally. And we, we've seen, we've, not literally, I guess, but uh, more, than, more than anybody else, I guess, we could say ever has. We'll see that as we go through. Okay, So let's look at verses 2 through 11. These verses set the scene for us. They start the argument. They're, they're truths of life that anyone can see. But Solomon puts them out for us here. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Or, I'm sorry. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? Okay. Vanity of vanities. Of all the vain things in life, it's the vainest. He's saying, uh, Dr. McCabe says it this way, a professor of mine in, in seminary, he says, he, he actually translates it, frustratingly enigmatic, and so basically we would read it, frustratingly enigmatic, frustratingly enigmatic, all is frustratingly enigmatic. Okay, that's not as memorable, so I don't, I don't uh, like that one as much, but it does capture the idea. The idea of, of vanity is this, it means fleeting or little or no substance. It's the same word used for vapor or breath. That It's there for a little while and then it's gone. It has little significance. It just comes up for a little while and it's gone. It's worthless. Insignificant. And so this is what the preacher, Solomon, says of all of life. It's all vain. And it's not just vanity, but it's the vanity of all vanities. It's the most vain of that which is vain. And this is from a man who had it all. He says, verse 3, What advantage does a man have? What, what profit is there? What gain is there to doing all these things? Solomon says, none. It's all vain and pointless. So really, as we think about this decision-making process and what paths we need to take in life, um, who cares? Solomon says, it's all vain anyway, isn't it? So let's not waste our mental energy on these vain and pointless pursuits. I mean, look at this, verses 4-10. through 10. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. 
Blowing toward the south, then, blow, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses the wind returns, and the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear feel, filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there's nothing new under the sun. He's saying all the created order continues to function and run just as it ever was. But each generation, verse 4, comes and goes. I mean, creation continues on like a, like a vehicle down a pathway, but generations pop up and, and, and go away. They just come and go. Sun rises, the winds blow, the earth abides, the rivers flow. But you know what? There's nothing new that happens. You know, these rivers, they, they keep flowing, but the, these lakes, they never fill up. They just keep emptying out so that the rivers continue to flow. Verse 11, there's no remembrance of earlier things. Or uh, as the New, Amer- or New International Version says, there's no remembrance of, of earlier people and also of the later people which will occur. There, there will be no remembrance of them among those who will come later still. So, what's the point of life? Because after a person dies, do people remember them? You say, well, there's lots of people that are memorable. I I can think of lots of people. Well, Well, how about this? Think of somebody from the 6th century who has significance still still today. Or, Or from the 10th century. Or from the 15th century B.C. It's hard to remember any of those people anymore. I mean, what significance in, is there in life? Soon enough, we'll all be dead. And life on earth will continue as it always has. Have we really made any impact on life? That's what, the, that's what Solomon is saying here. What is the point? Now, hold that thought as, as Solomon speaks to his qualifications now in verses 12 through 2.23 and what he's found in life. Okay, let's begin with verses 12 through 15. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. Okay, so he's telling us his accomplishments. I set my mind to seek and explore explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I've seen all the work which have been all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Okay. So consider again the vanity of life. He's saying it's like grasping after the wind. How foolish would it be for us to go outside and start trying to catch the wind in our hand? I mean, what would happen? It would, it would, just, it would go away. You're not able to hold on to anything. And this is what he's saying that, that his whole life is like. The idea is trying to grab something that is inherently fleeting and trying to hold on to it against all possibility. And he's saying, it's all vanity. Such is life. It's fleeting. It's passing away. It's blowing by. And there's no way we can catch up to it and make it last. It will fade away. So now that Solomon only sees vanity everywhere, he, he goes on to recap all the various places he looked to find meaning and significance. Verses 16 through 18. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. 
My mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realize that this also is a striving after the wind. Because in much wisdom there is much grief. And in increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Here he tries... Okay, he's already tried the pursuit of, of leadership and, and power. Now he's trying the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge. Okay, maybe, the, maybe there's more meaning to life if we understand more. And this is something relevant for us because many, many of us agonize over what type of education we have and what, how we should pursue our degrees and all that. We fret over which school to go to and whatever, and that's very important. But Solomon here affirms that the only pursuit, uh, he affirms that the whole pursuit of wisdom is is only more vanity. He says it's it's, it's just a vanity. It's chasing after the wind. End of verse 17. So who cares what school do you go to or what courses you take? It makes no difference in the end, right? Chapter two, verse one. I said to myself. Come now, I'll test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself, and behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure. What does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under the heaven the few years of their lives. Okay, so now he's going to turn towards hedonism. Okay, just flat-out pleasure. I'm just going to please myself as much as possible to the highest degree. I mean, if life is short, I'm going to play hard. So he tried pleasure. And what did he find? Vanity. It's quickly gone. Maybe if I laugh over things, that will help. But what does he say about laughter? It's madness. It's folly. It's foolishness. He tries wine, an outside stimulant. He looks anywhere he can for something worthwhile. Verse 4, I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. For myself, I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I, I bought male and female slaves. I had home-born slaves. I also possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. He tries to find the elusive meaning and, and worth of life in his work and that sounds familiar because our country is all about that. You find your identity in your job. But what he found was, verse 11, it was all vanity. It was a striving after the wind. There's no profit in any of it. Now, let's think about this for a moment. Okay? What were Solomon's works? What did he do? What kind of things did Solomon do in his lifetime? 
Yeah, he built tons of buildings. He presided over many judicial matters. Remember, he was the wisest man who ever lived. People came to him when they had questions. He united a kingdom. He expanded the kingdom's borders to larger than it ever had been before. He had a huge administration of governors, judges, chiefs, officials, officers, captains, commanders, armies. He built a fleet of ships. He established peace and trade with numerous otherwise hostile neighboring countries. You remember, Solomon was unlike his father in that he never went to battle. He, he gained all of the peace that he had through, through uh, treaties and things. I mean, a lot of it was through marrying a lot of these people, who princesses of other countries so that he would, he would gain good relations with them. But, but this man was a wise man when it came to foreign affairs. He established, uh, or he fortified cities with walls and gates. He brought in economic prosperity. Remember, so much so that, that so much so that silver and gold were as common as what? Do you remember? They were as common as stones. I mean, they were bringing in all this this gold and stuff. He didn't even have place to to hold all these things. He built the temple that his father, the great King David, could only dream about. And then, when he was done, he built up the rest of Jerusalem and the entire city simply to house his chariots and cavalry. Now, wouldn't you like that for a resume? I mean, how would you like to take that into a job interview? All these things that you have done, united to this nation and provided all this great wealth, all that makes his summary here in Ecclesiastes a bit of an understatement. He said, I, I did great projects, gardens, parks, servants, more herds and flocks, a large harem, greater fame than anyone else. I mean, he rose to the top of his game in every way in life. In verse 10, full material gluttony was his reward. That is, all that my eyes desired, I took it. I did not refuse my eyes. I took everything that I wanted because I could. And what is his assessment? Verse 11. After all those things, behold, the second part of the verse, all was vanity. And a striving after the wind, there was no profit under the sun. All these jobs that he had performed, it seems to Solomon that, that none of it really matters. It's all pointless. No matter how great it sounds, it, it has no significance on paper. I mean, Solomon, of all people, is saying this. And who can disagree with him so far? I mean, have you experienced this type of thought in your own life? I mean, what is the purpose of all these things that we're doing? It seems like I'm not accomplishing anything. Would it matter if I went down this path or this? Does it really matter? Because we're all going to the same place, the grave. Verses 12-16, through So I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will man do who will come after the king except for what has already been done? I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise men's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And so on. So his, all his work and worldly pursuits are vain. He turns again to consider wisdom. And he's saying, yes, wisdom is better than foolishness. It's better than folly. That makes sense. 
perhaps now we're getting somewhere. But for the same thing that happens to the pool, he's, fool, he says, happens to the wise men. They both die. And neither is remembered above the other. So apparently, he's saying here, wisdom seems to be in vain too. So where are all the answers to life? Verse 17. What's his, verse 17, what is uh, Solomon's reaction to this endless quest? Verse 17 says that he hated life. Verse 18, he hated his work. Verse 20, he began to despair. Look at verse 23. He saw his days as full of pain and grief with no rest. And he hated it because it's so vain, empty, meaningless, futile. So I'll ask you again, what difference does it make with what you do in your life? Who really cares what decisions you make? Now, in verses 24 through 26, we have the transition. All right, we need to follow Solomon's thought through this book because he, he began by affirming that the created order continues forever. Man comes and goes. Okay, we have this created order. It just keeps running down the racetrack and all, all the while humanity comes up and goes away. And all, that the, all the work that man does in this short lifespan means nothing since in the end they're all going to the same place. Nothing he can do between birth and death has lasting significance, Solomon says. It has no value. But now, in verses 24 through 26, he goes on to laying out a solution for us. A solution to this apparent vanity of everything under the sun. And how do we know that he's changed his tune? Well, the words have changed. Notice, let's read verse 24. There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and to tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without Him? For a person who is good and in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. Notice the words that are changed. Okay, Now he's starting to talk about words that have positive connotations, like better, good, from the hand of God, enjoyment, good in His sight, good in God's sight. These are words on the far, far other side, other end of the perspective than vanity, chasing after the wind, worthless, meaningless. Finally, Solomon found something that might be of some significance, something that has value. And what is that thing that he's found? It is perspective. It's a view of the world as God sees it. It is a truth to be known. You see, it's, it all starts with right thinking for Solomon. It starts with right doctrine. He says the best thing, verse 24, a man can do is to eat and drink and enjoy his work. But I just thought, I thought he just told us earlier that all was vanity. All those types of things, pursuing after all those pleasures, were vanity. But why does he now recommend them? He says there's nothing better than to do these things. Well, to eat and drink is a poetic way of saying everything that one does. Okay, Eating and drinking is simply everything one does. For eating and drinking is the basis of all activities. It is something that we all have to do. And so he's saying you should live life and be happy and actually enjoy the labors of your hands now. The same vain labor that he just mentioned earlier that was just a waste of time? 
Can that really be what he's saying? What's the catch? What's the difference? What has changed for Solomon? Notice verse 24. At the end of the verse, it says, This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. Solomon has seen many things. Okay, Chapter 2 tells us this. But there's one thing... There's one other thing that he's seen, and that is that eating and drinking, that is just living life and the enjoyment of one's work comes from the hand of God. It comes from God. So this changes everything. Before, in chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to 2.23, Solomon was looking at life through the lens of the, the worldly man or the natural man. And he was saying, I've pursued all these things and when I look at them apart from God, see, they're just a big waste of time. What are we doing here? So he's reporting what he had seen with his own eyes. And when that was the only way that he could interpret his perspective, then it was vanity. It was meaningless. But now he, he turns the picture. He, he, searched for the li- he searched for the meaning of life in all of creation. I mean, of anybody else, Solomon did it. He searched in all of creation. He couldn't find it until he looked where? Not to the creation, to the Creator. And that's when he started to see things how God saw them. That, that from the hand of God, things make sense. The only way that something temporal like our lives can ever have eternal significance is if an eternal God gives order to them. Because God is a purposeful God. He never does things in vain or without reason or without cause. And this includes our lives. Every aspect of our lives is ordered by the hand of God. That, that means that He is in control of every part of your life. If this were not the case... If God were not in control of your life, every little detail about your life, then we would be resigned to, as a world, as members of this earth, we would be resigned to sheer luck, okay, to chance, to chaos. That's what would run the universe. And if that were the case, then, like Solomon said in the first two chapters, Yes, life would be meaningless. What would be the point of all this? But our God is a God of wisdom. And what we need to understand is that there is no meaning in this life apart from a sovereign God. There is no meaning in life apart from a sovereign God. If He doesn't do something, then it's not lasting. It's vain. Augustine commonly taught that if anything is left to fortune, the world is aimlessly whirled about. But God is the author and providential Lord of all that happens. And since He does nothing in vain, okay, is that true? Does God do anything in vain? We have to say, what? No. If He doesn't, then that means that, that nothing is vain. Nothing in this life it has goes without meaning. Everything has meaning. And that's why I would suggest to you that the the point of this book is just that. Meaningful 
meaningful. All is meaningful. Okay, He's trying to explain that from the reverse perspective. If we fail to recognize this, then we go back into this worldly perspective and we're going to cry just like Solomon did at the beginning, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. All right. Now we have to hustle through these next um, this next chapter, chapter three. But Solomon here in chapter three, verses one through eight, begins with God's total sovereignty over all. Verse one is full of those kinds of words. There he says, "There's a time, a season, for every literally del- delight or desire under heaven." In verses two through eight, we see that there what we have are called mirisms. That is. He takes two opposites, like birth and death. And what he's doing is he's saying everything between those two, between birth and death, um, are important. That is, all of life. So he's, he's laying out with great detail God's total sovereignty over all that is. As Calvin once said, not one drop of rain falls without God's sure command. Verses 9-15, through 15, he begins with a question. Okay, what profit is there? if a worker toils, and so on. And uh, before, the answer was nothing. But now, after establishing that there's a sovereign God, that He's ordered all things, now, verse 10, I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men for which to occupy themselves. Now it's, it has meaning. It has value. Then look, look down to verse 14. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it. Nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear Him. That which is has been already, and that which will be has already been. For God seeks what has passed by. He said before, the things that had been are, are the things that will be. The things that will be already have been. And what's the point of it all? Now He says the same thing except for He says now it has value. Why? Because God's in it. You see, God is is directing all of creation towards one final goal. There is value to it. Let's look at uh, chapter 12. Okay, because this really summarizes for us the point of what Solomon is trying to do. And that is that his sovereignty is important because it leads us to godliness. Verse 11, chapter 12, verse 11, the words of wise men are like goads and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They're given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless. The excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep His commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment everything which is hidden, whether it is good and evil. Well, what does this really have to do with guidance and decision-making? Well, I think it has a lot to do with guidance and decision-making. We need to understand that nothing happens outside of God's perfect providence. Nothing. God has a plan for your life. But guess what? You are not sovereign enough. Because of all the mistakes that you make, all the bonehead decisions, you're not sovereign enough to overthrow it. I am not sovereign enough to overthrow God's sovereign plan. We're just not. 
There's a common misunderstanding of this idea that God has a plan for my life in churches today that, that teaches us that if you figure out what God's plan is, then, then you'll be all set. Either by signs, okay, you've heard people put out fleeces or whatever, or still small voices. We're told that it's up to us to figure out what God's plan is and then to obey. But, but if our investigative skills are not what they're supposed to be, if, if we're depraved, if, if, if as a result of our sin we can't figure out God's perfect plan, then we might miss it. Or if we can, we might, because of our stubbornness, disobey God's plan. In either case, we're doomed to God's second best, we think. Some kind of plan B. And, and as a result, all this anxiety and fear comes over us. We can't figure it out. But the fundamental fall, flaw in all of that thinking okay, that we've been taught most of our lives is that we've ignored the fact that we cannot trump God's design. We cannot trump God's sovereignty. The Bible teaches us that at, the, that at every turn, that God is sovereign over all things, that He will do as He pleases. Psalm 115.3 Our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. Psalm 135.6 The Lord does whatever pleases Him in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in their depths. Isaiah 46.9 and 10 Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like Me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say My purpose will stand and I will do what I please. Okay, Proverbs 16.33 The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 19.21 Many are the plans in man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Okay, there's lots of other verses I listed here for you, but the point is that nothing we do is outside of God's plan. Okay, so God is, is accomplishing His plan. He has a detailed plan for each of our lives. True. And it is of great value and significance by virtue of coming from a God who never does anything in vain. But we should not worry about finding it or missing it. We ought to trust in God and enjoy what He's guiding us through. There are two benefits to ascribing to God this idea that He is sovereign and He will accomplish His purpose. First of all, we put ourselves in obedience to Him. See, I can't figure it out, God, so I'm just going to have to obey You. And then second, we may rest safely and securely and confidently in Him that we don't have to worry about the outcome of our life because God has it ordered for His purposes. John Calvin says this, the same knowledge will drive us to put off rashness and overconfidence. That is the knowledge of, of God being sovereign over all. It will help us to put off rashness and overconfidence. And it will impel us continually to call upon God. Then also He will buttress our minds with good hope that with confidence and courage we may not hesitate to despise those dangers which surround us. The rest of the classes to follow will lay on this strong foundation that we have a God who is God indeed. He is almighty. He is near and present in our lives down to the very smallest of corners. 
the, the very minutest of details. He will not leave us or abandon us. And so, our first lesson in learning God's plan for our life is this. That you can trust God that you will not miss His plan for your life. He has ordered it and He will bring it to pass. Will you trust God in this? Will you trust God that He has already ordered it and that there's nothing that you can do to trump His plan? All right, we'll talk about how this plays out because now you're thinking, okay, well, does it really matter that I do anything? If He's already got it all planned, we'll answer those questions in the weeks to come, I promise you. Okay, because the Scriptures don't want to leave us to this um, laziness or uh, carelessness in our lives that, well, because God's got it all under control, I can just kind of be sloppy in the way that I follow Him. You'll see that, that part of His plan, what He's leading you to, okay, I don't want to give it all away, but next week we'll see that God is leading you to become more like Christ and all of these circumstances that are happening in your life are planned by God so that you can get there. Okay? And we'll, we'll see how we can get there. And then we'll talk about all the the other things when it comes to, okay, so which person should I marry? Which job should I take? Which house should I live in? All those types of things. We'll, we'll answer those, okay? Alright, I had to spit that all out quick because I had a lot to get through. Are there any questions? Alright. Sorry, that wasn't very interactive. Um, very preachy on my part, but... Uh, I think that's very foundational for us in order to understand the rest of this doctrine. You, you, will, you will see things differently when you, when you grasp that thing. And so if maybe you're still fuzzy on what we talked about today, I would encourage you, go back through those first three chapters of Ecclesiastes and then look at every single rest, reference on that last page that talks about God's sovereign control over everything. And that will help solidify for you that yes, God's plan is is best. It is what will happen. So there's no sense in me trying to trump it or trying to change it in any way. Let's pray. Lord, it is a great truth for us to know that You are in control of everything. That we are not just mindlessly or uh, needlessly wandering through this weary world but rather, You have a purpose for all things. It's great to know that You are not controlled by anyone. That Satan is not overpowering You at times. We are not overpowering You, certainly. That You have everything under Your control and everything in our lives happen for a purpose so that You can make us more like Jesus Christ. And we look forward to learning about that more and being committed to You more and being able to follow what You have desired for us. And so we pray that You would give us the humility and the desire to follow and to learn here in these next several weeks. And we pray that You would be with the service now to follow, that we would uh, grow in our love for the truth and in our desire for godliness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.